you know, you got to really think about at least you know, the, the reality or the perceptions around affordability and, and taste and, and the nutrient content. It's probably been a slight uptick in the relative importance of things like environment and animal welfare over time. It, it's not a groundswell change, but I'd say it's, it's probably, you know, a, a positive trend towards more concern about those things. But not everybody is the same. And you'll find people in our, in our sample that, you know, do put environment first or social responsibility on the top. Um, some people, all they care about is affordability. They're going to buy the cheapest option, you know, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. So there are a lot of consumer segments out there. And I think it's, a, it's important, you know, for any food business to think about who is my segment and what is it that they care about. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, we can't talk about farm to table without wondering what's really happening with consumer demand. And I've got just the person to talk about that because it's Jason Lusk and Jason is the head of the Ag Econ Department at Purdue University. And Jason, you get to be a two-headed, maybe even more heads than that, but you're also the head of the Center for Food Demand Analysis and Sustainability. Jason, nice to have you here on Farm to Table Talk. Yes, great, great to be back. You know, Jason, I, I think back over the years, and I remember many times where Purdue was a, particularly paying attention to where long-term demand is. And I'm, I'm going to date myself, Jason, because I remember coming to an event at the Purdue Union where uh, General Mills and, and all these big names were coming together and you were bringing people over from Europe. And at the time, what the focus was is if you wanted to figure out what was happening in the future of food, take a close look at Europe. And I still recall that because I thought it'd give me an excuse to get on a plane and go to Europe and check it out for myself, which I ultimately did. But, you know, even way back then, Jason, it seemed like Purdue from time to time stepped into this space and helped interpret for the food industry and for agriculture where we're headed. And it sounds like you're kind of in that breach now. I like to think so. I mean, i proud of the university I work at. And I think we really have a, a world-class reputation in, in agriculture. And a lot of our expertise is in production agriculture. And I think we, we do done a lot of work internationally. You mentioned Europe and thinking about food security in a global context. And of course we have work in the food space, but I think historically speaking, maybe despite that conference you mentioned, you know, haven't uh, had as much influence on the food side of that agricultural equation as we have. And it it's really was the impetus for me thinking about trying to start the center for a couple of reasons. One is uh, you just look at the amount of money consu consumers spend on food, compare that to the amount of money farmers receive for selling ag products. And there's a lot of stuff that happens after the farm. So if we want to think about all that value added that's going on and where, where there are economic opportunities, a lot of them are post farm and how, how can we, uh, provide opportunities for both farmers and, and others to engage in some of that value add. Um, the other, other thing too, that I think is, uh, is critical there as well is, 
you know, even the stuff that's going on on the farm, the kinds of research that we're doing here at Purdue are really creating a lot of data mm -hmm. about, you know, environmental impacts and inputs. And that data is increasingly of interest to the food processors and the food retailers. And while we're not quite there yet, I can imagine a world in which these food supply chains are much more interlinked and, and you got information flowing down that, that food supply chain to the consumer. Um, and so, you know, what happens on the farm is, is not so distant anymore from the consumer. And so I think these needs to try to understand what consumers are wanting and thinking are, are becoming more important. We're already seeing it in a lot of the food processing and retailing, uh, more pressure on ESG, the environment, sustainability, governance issues. And we're starting to feel those pressures back on the farm too. Oh, slow down on that acronym again. ESG. Yep. Envir environment, uh, sustain, uh, 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 yeah, environment, uh, uh, sustainability and governance issues. And okay. these are, and, and really these are, you know, these ESG criteria. Um, while yes, a lot of it's being pushed by food consumers, often it's the investors mm -hmm. that are asking food companies to, uh, start to, to track how they're doing on these these fronts and to report back on them. And, and, you know, if you want investments in your company from the large, say, institutional investors, let's say the Texas State Teachers Retirement Fund or someone like that, you yeah. have to, you know, show that you're making progress on environmental sustainability metrics. And often these food processors or food retailers, they can only make so much change under their you know, their four walls, so to speak. And so to try to make bigger impacts, what they do is they reach upstream in the food supply chain to try to have a, a bigger impact in, in, in terms of those metrics that they're promising their investors. You know, you mentioned that your perspective is somewhat global. And, you know, like I was saying, we used to look at what was happening really literally around the world. And, and it reminds me, Jason, that you're one of what, only four or five of the land grant universities that the name of the university isn't the name of the state. Uh, so people can, can be left to guess, you know, so they can't uh, actually just claim the word world. Yeah. Well, some people think we're an Ivy league institution, but I tell nowhere land grant in Indiana. Um, and I do have to admit the first time I ever visited Purdue, I got an invitation to come up here to think about going to grad school. I ultimately chose to go elsewhere, but, um, I had to look it up on the map. I didn't even know where Purdue was. Yeah. West Lafayette. Uh, and as if there was an East Lafayette, but <laughs> I don't think there is an East Lafayette, but uh, it, it's a it's a wonderful school. You got a, gr a great tradition, but explain that a little bit too, because as an economist and you've got uh, extension responsibilities, and I think Purdue's always done that especially well. But most of that role is thought of as taking care of, say, the farmers and agriculture within the state of Indiana. And you clearly are tackling something that has a much broader perspective, and, and perhaps it is even global, but certainly not limited to what happens within the, the borders of Indiana. Yeah, I, you know, I think Purdue's always had a great vision. There was a, a dean a number of years ago that used a phrase of being a, a locally relevant, but globally preeminent. And um, so we want to do stuff that matters, uh, both to our local stakeholders, but also in the world. I think Part of that is being on the cutting edge of what's happening uh, to research because we want to give good advice to the people that we live around and that we, we work with. Uh, and we're fortunate still here in this state to have a lot of public investment in um, higher ed and in extension. That's something, unfortunately, I think has been cut in a lot of other states. 
as well. So in Indiana, we have, you know, over 90 counties, there's still a, you know, a, a county, county extension agents in every one of those offices. And that that's something, you know, because of budget cuts and other priorities in other states that that capacity has been eroded a lot of other places. We've been able to maintain that here. Of course, it's, it's always a challenge. Everybody wishes they had more money. Um, but, um, but certainly, I think we take here a broad view about not just extension, but outreach and, and engagement, you know, trying to do the kind of work that has an impact in engaging with our stakeholders. And whether that falls under the umbrella of the big E extension or just trying to have an, a, you know, uh, an impact in the communities that we operate, I don't, I don't think we try to draw real firm lines there. You know, if you mentioned earlier that there were some others that had been head of the departments at Econ with their view of view of things with the dean of the school and so forth. And one of them, if you go back quite a few years, you had one in those in that chair that you're in today that said, get big or get out. Uh, (laughs) That's that's quite a few years back. Um, But that's changing, too. I mean, something you said a few minutes ago is looking for the implications of of what the trends are for it sounds like all sizes and shapes of of farms and businesses that position themselves and it's not just get big or get out certainly there's a lot of ways to compete you're right uh earl earl butts was the chair of this department many years ago before he became dean and then uh, secretary of ag and that that was certainly a phrase that was he, he was famous for saying, among others, he had a lot of famous things for saying some of them not so positive. But um, but anyhow, I, I think you're right. There's no monolithic way to be in agriculture. There are many markets and many opportunities. And I think, you know, our goal here is to try to think about, you know, how can you best serve your your customer base? Sometimes that'll make sense to be large, particularly in some commodity markets where you're really competing on costs. And those economies of scale really matter a lot, uh, but there are other markets that that the nature of the competition is a little different. You're competing on service, you're competing on quality. Um, you know, you may be competing sometimes. You know, given the the ESG metrics that I mentioned earlier, maybe you're competing on some environmental metrics. And so, I think, um, yeah, there, there's not a single uniform solution that's best for everyone out there. You know, let's dive into some of what you're reading from the consumers, because as I understand it, you're going to be starting this sustainability food purchasing index, and you've got a report out, and you're going to be following up and continually doing these and seeing, and so you really will be establishing trends, because you'll see where it is now, and you'll see what it is in the in, in the future. But I was intrigued, Jason, that uh, 25% said they couldn't find specific food items, and 32% of the people of over 1200 people I think you talked to were that were in this survey were waiting for the next paycheck before they would buy their food. Uh, 16% reported food insecurity um, and, and many other interesting uh, findings. But I think that this is kind of sobering, Jason. We don't, I, I'm, it was to me that that was this high that uh, and in, and one could argue that inflation's just ramping up now too so you wonder where this is going but it doesn't seem good yeah so let me uh, back up and give a, a couple of motivations for for doing a survey of this sort one one is something you alluded to a little bit and that is you know these kinds of data sometimes the government reports results on things like food insecurity but it's often um, you know, 
with a long lag. So the USDA, for example, reports a food insecurity number is for the whole year. And often they report that oh, about a year or so after the year in question. But as we've learned through uh, the pandemic that we just lived in, um, it's, you know, we need closer to real-time information that the statistic you mentioned on, you know, how many people couldn't find what they're looking for in grocery stores. You know, we found about one fifth of people said they couldn't, um, uh, you know, couldn't find, you know, something in the grocery store they were looking for. You know, as far as I know, there's no other data on that. But, you know, is that an improvement over time or, um, or you know, are we getting better or worse on that metric? So I think one of them is just trying to provide closer to real-time data on the state of the food system. The other thing I'll, I'll say is I think people are often rightfully skeptical of surveys. Often people will tell you they'll do one thing on a survey and then turn around and do something entirely different in the grocery store. Yeah. Um, but the advantage of a, of a survey like this is uh, if we're tracking measures over time, even if you think you know a number is overinflated in one particular month, those trends can be informative. Are we seeing this number go up or down over time? And we might have more confidence in those trends, even if one wants to be a bit skeptical about any of those results at any particular point in time. But yeah, so what what, what we just released was the first uh, survey and what I hope will be many, many more to come. We plan to repeat this survey every month. In fact, our, our February survey is in the field right now. And so we hope to have those results out in, every, number, uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks. And there's, you know, mixed stories here. You're right. Uh, food insecurity rates are actually about what we observe, um, you know, the USDA reporting a little bit higher at about 16% of consumers uh, categorized as food insecure. And so there are some worrying statistics. At the same time, there are some numbers that make you feel maybe a little bit better. So, for example, we asked some questions about, you know, overall, how happy are you with the, the food that you're able to eat and buy? 87% of people said either very or somewhat happy. So um, there's both uh, some, you know, you can find both some positive and negative stories that came out of this most mm. recent report. I was in a clubhouse discussion the other day with some people. With, and in fact, I brought up your uh, your report and, and people from around the country were jumping in and speaking out on what they found. And the, um, it was interesting to me is that everybody said, gee, the, the meat, departments just clear full and looks as good as ever and sows the produce but they're just odd things missing you know like when you go shopping you can't find the aluminum foil and then they're out of crisco you know and 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 things that you know aren't what we normally think of as staples but they're just odd stuff that there's a whole shelf missing of of uh, but not necessarily those big categories that people were used to thinking of mhm mm yeah, I think, you know, that's sort of the, the weird world we're living in with some of these COVID supply chain disruptions. Um, you know, it's some, some uh, a journalist a few weeks ago asked me, why are some, why are randomly some things, you know, missing in the grocery store? I thought, okay, how do you explain a random <laughs> set of, <laughs> of occurrences? Um, but some of it is, you know, uh, you know, the issues related to, you know, if the issue is you're having a hard time getting enough truckers, to yeah, pick up uh, right. and deliver products, you know, some of that is random. You know, did the trucker show up at your food distribution plant and get your product delivered? That can be a bit random. And um, and then some of the some of it, of course, relates to just the the raw ingredients uh, you mentioned the, the the foil 
or some other items. Sometimes there's been particular disruptions in a particular supply chain that will affect a lot of them. But yeah, I think to food consumers, sometimes it does appear a little random as to what's missing this month compared to last. You know, one thing that struck me uh, that critics of these kind of things always point to is that always number one and two in some order are uh, taste and price, or maybe it's price and taste. And uh, and so people that want to not pay attention to the rest of it, you know, just jump to that and say, well, see, it's always the same. You know, they want it to be cheap enough and they want it to taste good. True enough, that's almost always the top of every list. But then looking at the middle of the list to follow, uh, you start seeing some intriguing things. You start getting some language in about either uh, biodynamic or sustainability or other uh, other things that certainly weren't showing up some years ago. Uh, I, I wonder how you feel about that when you when you look what you're beginning to see. Are there are there any surprises in the lineup to you, or is it much as you thought it would be? Yeah, you're right. If you, you know, this is a kind of question we've asked many times over the years, you know, what's most important to you when you buy food and we either have people do a ranking or in the way we did it in our latest uh, survey is, uh, you know, you got a hundred points, allocate them to these six different categories. And you're right. The two, the two most, uh, you know, popular categories were taste and affordability, taste and price. So out of that hundred points, about 50 of them, 50 of them, about half of them got allocated to those two. And then the, the next was nutrition. So those sort of all combined about, you know, three quarters of the points. Um, that seemed, you know, that's very consistent with other ways we've asked this question over the years. It, it doesn't mean those other things don't matter, mm -hmm. but it, but it does suggest that, you know, if you want to be competitive to a broad swath of consumers, you know, you got to really think about at least, you know, the, the reality or the perceptions around affordability and, and taste and, and the nutrient content. We, we have seen probably, like I said, you know, we've been doing surveys uh, over the years with variations on this question. There's probably been a slight uptick in the relative importance of things like environment and animal welfare over time. It, it's not a groundswell change, but I'd say it's it's probably you know a, a positive trend towards more concern about those things. The other thing I'd say is that there's a lot of differences across people. So those numbers are that the average person, but not everybody is the same. And you'll find people in our, in our sample that you know do put environment first or social responsibility on the top. Mm -hmm. And one way to think about that is there there are niche markets out there of people who really have very different concerns from the average consumer. Um, some people, all they care about is affordability. They're going to buy the cheapest option, you know, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. And so there are a lot of consumer segments out there, and I think it's a it's important, you know, for any food business to think about who is my segment and what is it that they care about. Well, and and then. This whole area that relates to the environment, it's uh, there's there's so much language about it. I mean, you know, is it organic? Is it the real organic? Is it non-GMO? Is it, you know, biodynamic? Is it regenerative? Is it sustainable? You know, I don't even know if you how you can ask the question because it's uh, what you're trying to get at is described in so many ways. It's got to be a little bit confusing. It can be. We chose in this survey to tackle that issue in a couple of different ways. One way is to create an overall sustainable food purchasing index. And admittedly, this is self-described by the consumers in terms of their behaviors. But we didn't just ask a question, you know, is your food, you know, you're purchasing sustainable. 
what we did is we picked really five main dimensions of sustainability, economic, food security, nutrition, social, and environment. And then we added one more on there related to sort of taste issues. And then we asked a series of questions within each one of those dimensions that related to sort of whether the what they say about what they're buying is sustainable or not. And we, we put that on a score and, uh, you know, a hundred would be your sort of the most sustainable you could be, a zero would mean you're the least sustainable you could be. And what we find is overall across all those dimensions, if we create an, an overall score, it's a 67. Um, so one way to think about that is it's, uh, it's a long way from zero, but it's also, if you're looking at it on hundred percent, you know, percent scale, it's about a D plus <laughs> or yeah, so yeah, and the, yeah. the ones that score the lowest are uh, the social environmental uh, dimensions of sustainability. The ones that score a little better are the economic and, and food security dimensions of sustainability. So again, that's something we'll we'll track over time and sort of see how people self-assess them things their, themselves on those dimensions that are related to sustainability. The other way we we chose to approach is a little more similar to what you described, Roger. We um, ask about you know, shopping and eating habits over the last 30 days as it relates to some specific claims and labels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, local versus non-local, you know, grass-fed versus conventional, cage-free over uh, conventional organic versus non-organic, plant-based, whatever. And so, you know, to the, we don't necessarily assign any of those to, you know, being more or less sustainable, but we're tracking data on what people are saying about how often they choose those particular types of, of products and so that, you know, people can take those data and turn around and say, you know, on this, these particular uh, production practices related to sustainability, what, how are people trending over time? How do you, how do you put together this cohort that you're working with that, uh, you know, the mix of geography and age and sex and, you know, all, all of that, how, how yeah. are you kind of guided? It's, it's a good question because uh, you know, uh, you know, the answers you get depend on who, who you ask. Yeah. So uh, the sample comprises, you know, a, a, a wide diversity of people all over the United States. We, uh, we write the survey ourselves and program it ourselves to collect the data, but we do uh, employ a third party to deliver the survey to a, a panel that they maintain. Uh, what we do is we, um, uh, in this survey, we have uh, quotas essentially. So we, we set those up so that when we get, you know, a certain percentage of people in different income categories and different age categories and different regions of residence, then we stop. And what that does is it ensures that the sample we have uh, of data looks like the U.S. population in terms of a set of, of six different demographic categories. Is there a way that you can take this and compare to some, say, for example, Google searches or something? Do you, are you able to do a kind of gut check and say, you know, this kind of aligns to makes me think of something else, like, like a Google search, for example? Absolutely. And one of the things that we hope to do over time is, uh, you know, one way to answer that, Roger, is to say, can you validate these yes. results? Yeah. Do they, right. do they right. match up with other evidence that we have on what consumers find is important? So certainly over time, as we're tracking these issues, and let's say people, uh, you know, they, they start saying they're, they're, they're more often likely to choose, say, plant-based, you know, products. Well, you know, we could compare that trend to a trend that we can see in, in, in Google search, for example. Um, so I, I think 
that validation is something that we will do, but it'll be something that we'll have to develop uh, as we move out over time. It's amazing how many people, well, I guess everybody has an opinion. You know, you talk to people and say, well, I think that more millennials are doing more this or, and, and usually uh, the conversation relates to their own immediate family and friends and, and they may be right. You know, it, it, it could be that they're perfectly representative, but there's a, there's a, a lot of that, but it's, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think Jason, of how many people are going to be interested in what you're doing, uh, both, you know, companies and, and really like, I got back to the question about big or small, because, uh, people that are doing direct sales to consumers are, are, are trying to position the product, even if they're selling at the farmer's market or CSAs mm-hmm. or, you know, online sales, which there's more of that let alone trying to anticipate what trends that uh, JBS or somebody else is looking for. So I, I would suspect there'd be a lot of interest in people trying to keep track of what you're learning from this process. I certainly hope so. And um, we, uh, we look forward to people following us and um, they can certainly reach out to me and we'll put them on our mailing list whenever our, uh, our latest results come out. And um, we certainly invite folks to uh, suggest questions to us we should be asking um, and uh, give us feedback as we move forward. Now, will you be working, um, will you have a lot of interaction with the major food companies that are, I I suspect, doing their own research as well and probably look to you to see whether or not they're on track uh, and and look at all of the different sources of, of trend data that's out there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there, of course, as you mentioned, is a lot of data that exists. Um, and, uh, you know, grocery store scanner data, for example, is, um, you know, data that, that a lot of food companies have access to is very expensive. Um, and so part of what we're trying to to do here is uh, democratize data a little bit, make, make data publicly available, uh, to folks who maybe can't always custom, uh, design their own survey or buy that scanner data. Um, so that that's one of our goals here. But yes, uh, we you know we we certainly engage with and have sought feedback from and and uh, t- taken advice from you know various members of the food supply chain. The other thing, you know, I think we gets back to the comment earlier about you know at Purdue we we have strong relationships in traditional agriculture and with a lot of the agricultural commodity organizations. And so one one of the things I think we're trying to do here too is bring data about the consumer to the farm. And to the farmer, and uh, so we've certainly you know got feedback from some of those farm organizations that we work with as well. Well, it's it's a it's a fascinating time, and one thing, Jason, that strikes me is that apparently these companies are are making a bet that there is interest in sustainability. Uh, when I'm when you just look at how much real estate on labels is getting used up to be able to tell a story. And um, there was a time where you would see that, uh, you know, an organic or something else, and they would have a, a, some story or a little line or something. But, but now you can go to every category in a store and find a story where they're talking about, here's how our product is produced. And you would assume they wouldn't spend money on using up that label space unless they felt it helped sell their product and that that means the consumer must be interested. Yeah, you're right. The, the, there's a scarce uh, space on uh, food packaging labels. One thing I think that's interesting, some of it of course is coming about because uh, the new um, 
disclosure rules around use of uh, of GMOs, but you know, use of QR codes, and a lot of companies have made use of that to provide even more information to consumers as you as you click on those, uh, you know, that that additional information that's out there. But you're certainly right. I think the story around how food's being produced is increasingly important. One one interesting, you know, I think thought experiment is as we move out in the future, you know, uh, food today, pack, prepackaged food anyway, has to have a, a nutrition facts panel. You can see the number of grams of protein or number of calories. I think one interesting thought is, you know, might there be a world in the future where you have something similar related to these sustainability attributes? Uh, for example, how many, uh, you know, how many, how many carbon emissions or car- carbon equivalent emissions were associated with this? Uh, how, how much water was used in the process? I think, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of thinking about how we can provide more objective information to, to food consumers. And again, we're a long way from that world of being able to communicate that kind of information, but it's sure fun to think about a world where it might be possible. Well, you know, I would imagine uh, the nutrition department of Purdue's looked at, at this as well, that you can, the different production practices apparently have some impact on the nu- nutrient quality uh, and nutrient density in, in the foods, but there's just, it's really hard to get that data. Uh, so people are trying to look at it right now. I think FDA is requiring like, I don't know, like 20 or so nutrients, not even that many that usually go on labels. But when you start looking at what FDA considers essential nutrients, like 35 or 40, you know, and then people never think about these things. And I just saw they come up, Jason, they've come up with a new regulation that's coming down the pike where they're going to allow the industry to uh, get different nutrient data for different, say, like an apple. So instead of just having apples and you say, well, apples have all of these things in them. Because they will, a Fiji apple has this, but a Granny Smith apple can be different. And they're going to have to prepare the data to show that you get more of these nutrients out of a Granny Smith, perhaps, than a, than a Fiji. Um, that is mind-boggling what we, you know, when you start trying to match up that data. It is. Um, but it's actually amazing. You know, the USDA um, ARS, Ag Research Service, actually has a database of, you know, nutrient um uh, you know, nutrient content of different products. And, um, you know, they have what, it, what seems like millions of products. Now, whether they, they go, actually, I'm looking, I looked it up just now. You can find that. Yeah. Both red, delicious, granny Smith, honey, crisp, gala, Fuji. Wow. So, uh, at least in terms of, uh, the USDA's website, yeah, yeah. You, you can find some of those things, but it's not always easy for the consumer in the grocery store to find them. And they're certainly not going to find it on the, you know, the n- newest and latest varieties of apples that are, are coming where, out. Where, where is that site again? Yeah. Um, I, well, I just Googled it. It's, uh, Food Data Central, um, but it's the USDA Ag Research Service um, hmm. uh, has a, a database where you can, um, yeah, like I said, yeah, food, food, food Data Central is what it says on this website. But yeah, you just type in a product and it'll give you a list and uh, click on it. It'll show you all the nutrient content. Well, this is something that your Indiana farmers that uh, get into too, because there are some people that are just are very critical saying that our farmed out soils are... Um, there's, we don't have the nutrition that we used to have. I can't find the data that supports those cases, that case, but you, it, it's broadly stated that, um, and people just accept it that, well, this must be true that the farming methods that we're using in larger scale monocropping and so forth is depleting, uh, what we were getting in nutrition. But again, um, I haven't found the data that supports that. 
Yeah, the, you know, there's a, a large number of studies related to these topics. I think one of the more interesting ones. So before I, I spent the last last five years here at Purdue, in my in a previous life, I was on faculty at Oklahoma State University. They had some uh, field trials there that had been running since the 1920s, um, uh, maybe even earlier than that. Uh, the Magruder plots, um, and and uh, they've on some of those plots, they have planted two continuous wheat every year with no additional fertilizer for now over a hundred years. And um, change. Well, they've got data on, on crop yields and, and, and on, you know, uh, soil uh, nutrient profiles. Of course, those got, you know, better data as time went on and the science kind of developed what you, what, what it seems appears to happen is you get a big drop off in sort of, you know, nitrate content and, um, in carbon in the soil right after it's plow after you plow up that native prairie land, um, and then it sort of stabilizes. Um, one interesting thing in terms of yields is actually that the yields on those on those plots are higher, quite a bit higher today than they were back in the 1920s. But the reason for that is they're you know they're planting ever new varieties on there. So one way to think it say that is the the improvements in crop genetics have offset the losses in soil fertility. It's only just beginning when and um, and how we're going to accommodate all that data without totally confusing people or try to attach a book to a, a label, you know, our yeah. QR codes. But certainly all, all these things matter, you know, depend, you know, probably the question is just how big is it? But I, I know farmers here in Indiana that that grow soybeans under contract with, say, to, tofu manufacturers to grow a particular variety of soybean. You know, because they know that soybean has a you know particular set of you know properties that they need for their process, mm-hmm. and so yeah, you know, I don't think there's we have every reason to believe there's there's going to be different even across even amongst these big commodity crops, there could be some some significant differences in nutrient content and so forth, and um and the question is you know is there somebody out there willing to pay for it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it well, and. And actually, they don't even have to pay for some of what you've got. The people are going to be able to look for these reports. And let me let me just wrap up then, because uh, and I really appreciate this conversation. But if people want to keep track now that you get this index started, if they either want to receive it or follow it or see what you're learning, um, where do they find this information? Sure. So, you know, one way they can find it is on our website, which is actually in the process of, of being renovated, but you can still find it there. If you go to Purdue, P-U-R-D-U-E dot ag backslash C-F-D-A-S, that's the Center for Food Demand Analysis and Sustainability. A lot of the work we're, do, we're doing is there. If that's hard to find, you can always just look on my blog, which is just my name, uh, Jason Lusk, J-A-Y-S-O-N-L-U-S-K.com. And I linked some of these uh, some of these things on my blog as well. Well, be sure and link on your blog to listen to Farm to Table Talk, too, because we're going to have this conversation available for people here. Uh, Jason, I really like what you're, what you're doing. Glad you're in this space, and we'll check back with you again as you get, um, get some time and get a few of these reports together and see some new things that we're learning. But I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Yep. Thanks, Roger. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us.